Welcome to the Gospel Reverb Podcast. Gospel Reverb is an audio gathering for preachers, teachers, and Bible thrill seekers. Each month, our host, Anthony Mullins, will interview a new guest to gain insights and preaching nuggets mined from select passages of Scripture in that month's Revised Common Lectionary. The podcast's passion is to proclaim and boast in Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, on to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Gospel Reverb. Gospel Reverb is a podcast devoted to bringing you insights from Scripture found in the Revised Common Lectionary and sharing commentary from a Christ-centered and Trinitarian view. I'm your host, Anthony Mullins, and it's my delight to welcome our guest, Dr. Jeremy Begbie. Jeremy is the Thomas A. Langford Distinguished Research Professor of Theology at Duke Divinity School here in Durham, North Carolina. He is also the McDonald Agape Director of Duke Initiatives of Theology and the Arts. He has authored several books, including A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts, and Voicing Creation's Praise Toward a Theology of the Arts. Jeremy is an ordained priest of the Church of England, and he earned his PhD from the University of Aberdeen. Jeremy, thank you for being with us, and welcome to the podcast. And since this is your first time joining us, we'd love to know a bit of your story and how you are participating with the Lord these days. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. A delight to be here. Um, I came to faith when I was about 19 years old. I was brought up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and was a musician from as long, well, as long as I can remember, far back as I can remember. And through my early life and through my teens, all I wanted to be was a musician. I wasn't an atheist, I don't think, but I was a kind of lazy agnostic. Uh, my mother was a Christian, my father probably not. And although I went to church every now and then, Christianity was a pretty distant thing, but I was interested in religion broadly. That was, a, that was about it. Anyhow, I started on a on training in music and the beginnings of a career in music. And it's when I was at Edinburgh University doing that, that an old school friend of mine called Alan Torrance, who's a violinist, um, got together with me and we played a number of concerts together. We played music. I was a, a, a pianist. He was a violinist, still is. And we um, started talking, of course, about the faith. And he introduced me to the New Testament. He introduced me also to his father, James Torrance. And I had an elective space in one of my courses. And he said, well, why not go along and hear my father speak? You know, he's quite a good speaker. And well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a course just for interest in theology, which I could barely spell. I never, of course, read the New Testament or anything like that. But anyhow, so I went along and heard this, this theologian, and I heard him speak on Hebrews, I think it was. And I don't think I understood a word that he said, because it was all a kind of foreign language. But at a deeper level, I knew he had something that I didn't have. And I thought, whatever he's on, I'd like some of that. He had an intellectual excitement, as well as obvious deep um, love and commitment to what, he, uh, to what he was doing. And I got to know the family well. I got invited into this wonderfully hospitable home. And I suddenly realized, this is God in action. This is what being a Christian looks like and what being a Christian family looks like. And over the period of about two or three months, um, I realized I was praying, I was going to church, and I was a Christian. It wasn't a particular day, 
but uh, it happened nonetheless fairly quickly. I was grasped by grace and by the extraordinary living presence of this person, Jesus, who, who spoke vibrantly to me out of the pages of the New Testament. So that's how it all started. Since then, I tried to keep, of course, the music going. Um, but I felt a strong call to ordination very early on. I went to study theology in Aberdeen under James Torrance. And then uh, ordination training in Cambridge. I was then a parish minister for three years. And that's all I really wanted to do at that time. Um, I didn't expect to be in the academic world at all. But I was called back to Cambridge to do some teaching at a seminary where I trained. And then I taught also in the university. And the rest is history, really. I've, I've uh, grown, I think, as a, uh, as a Christian theologian, as a Christian thinker. I see myself as fundamentally an evangelist of good news. And I'm working out my ordination vows in uh, as a theologian, but also as a musician. And most of my research work has been in theology and the arts. I'm now at Duke Divinity School and uh, and loving it. So that's, that's a very quick history. Hmm. You talked about your first love of music, and I came across a quote from an artist, Emmanuel Jell, who said, quote, music is the only thing that can enter your system, your mind and your heart, without your permission, end quote. And it, on some level, for me, it rings true. And as you've already stated, you've invested most of your career teaching the harmony of arts and theology, specifically music. And some in our listening audience may think theology and music are strange bedfellows, but you see the symmetry and the symbiotic relationship, which is really unique. So how does, I know this is a loaded question, but how does music bear witness to the relational dynamics within the Holy Trinity? <laughs> well, when I started on this road, there was actually very little written on theology and music um, but for a new Christian coming to faith in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and I, I was nonetheless teaching doctrine week by week in Cambridge and in churches and elsewhere. But I was still having to think as a musician and act as a musician because that's, it's just part of you. And I soon realized there were extraordinary resources in music to help us understand more deeply and experience more profoundly the good news of the gospel. And so I dived into music, as it were, with theological ears <laughs> and um, into theology with, with musical ears. And w one of the, the earliest things I found was an extraordinary mm, resonance between uh, what the church has come to call the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, the way in which we hear music. And the, the, the way through into that is, is very simple. It's just that... Um, it's a very simple idea, really. And it's that it, the way we see the world and the way we hear the world, um, these are very different. If I'm a painter and I try to put yellow, say, and uh, red on the same patch on a canvas in exactly the same space, it's impossible to see them as red and yellow. Either the yellow will hide the red or the red will hide the yellow or the paint's wet, then uh, they become orange. So you can't see two different things in the same space at the same time. That's just the way our visual perception operates. The things we see occupy bounded spaces with edges to them. 
such that we say things are over here, but those things are not here. This desk is here, but it's not over there on the other side of the room. It, it occupies a bounded space. I also quickly saw that if you start thinking of the Trinity along those lines, which most of us do, you're in a lot of trouble because, of course, we don't believe in tritheism. We don't believe that there are three distinct gods occupying a bounded space, kind of three circles or zones. Um, but we're certainly not Unitarian. That is, we don't believe that God is an undifferentiated sort of blob uh, or um, like the white of a whiteboard you know, with no distinctions and no differentiations. Well, the way we hear the world then opens up a very different way of conceiving and imagining uh, the, the triunity of God. Because, of course, if I play a note on a piano, that sound fills the whole of the space that I hear. It doesn't occupy a bounded zone. We don't say it's somewhere, but not somewhere else. What we actually hear in our ears fills the whole of our heard space. And if I add another note to that, that second note will also fill the same space, the same space. But I hear it as distinct. By the third note, likewise, I'm now looking, or rather hearing, not looking, I'm now hearing three notes in the same space at the same time. So those classic problems of the Trinity, when we're trying to over-visualize it and try to under understand threeness and oneness in the same space, uh, they begin to disappear. And of course, there's another thing about a three-note chord, if, if these three notes happen to resonate with each other, is that, well, just that, they set each other off. They enhance each other. They free each other to be the notes they were created to be. Or if it's no piano, they one string and the other two will free uh, free each other to be the strings they were created to be. What this opens up then is a huge uh, imagination of the Trinity that I believe is much more true to Scripture. So in John's Gospel, for instance, we have the Father in the Son, the Son in the Father. What are we going to do with that in language? It's very hard to visualize, but it's extraordinarily easy to hear just by playing two notes on the guitar on the piano. And I began to see that there's so many problems we've had with the doctrine of the Trinity is because we've insisted on over-relying on our eyes rather than our ears. And then this beautifully chimed in with, uh, well, indeed, with James Torrance's theology and uh, all the theology that I'd been hearing and that I'd been preaching <laughs> uh, for, for so many years, I suddenly realized this actually opens this up. And I've used this model in um, many situations with atheists, agnostics, schools, churches. Um, and I've, I've found so many of the problematic, uh, well, the difficulties of conceiving the Trinity begin to dissolve away. So that's basically, that was, the, that was one of the first things I discovered. And it was a kind of eureka moment. I would encourage our listening audience to... Um look at the archives of your included videos on gci.org. Uh, Jeremy did such a masterful job of talking about the very thing he just mentioned. And it, it was helpful for me, Dr. Begbie, because we often look at the Trinity as a mathematical conundrum yeah. as opposed to a relationship to be enjoyed and a mystery to consider, right? And, and music, what you just said about the ears versus our, our sight, I, I think music gives us the, 
the capacity to to put on spiritual imagination in a way that the, those unhelpful analogies we often use in churches can never get at. So thank you for that. Well, that yeah, so. that is the trouble, of course, with Trinity. So many of our Trinity Sunday sermons may turn God into a problem to be solved. And yes. we actually reinforce that in our congregation, which is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. we're, and we still, last point, we still go on and on about the doctrine of the Trinity as if, that's what we're talking about. We're not. We're talking about God. So, you know, I used to. See, I remember when I first started teaching theology, people used to say to me, uh, as they do to lots of pupils of the Torrances, I think, you've got a bit of a thing about the Trinity. But my my response was, <laughs> well, uh, I do, yes, indeed, because I have a thing about God. Do you not? Um, yes. What other thing is there? It's fascinating, isn't it? You can. We all have a thing about God, but I think about the Trinity. It becomes this kind of optional exotic extra that's really quite difficult for, for theologians. But Trinity is a reality to be enjoyed, not a problem to be solved. Yeah. Your, this conversation reminds me of a, a quote I saw in Michael Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, he, he wrote, Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, and the joy behind all joy. Hey, I'm going to get that. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's move on to the lectionary passages. That's why we're here today. We'll be discussing four passages this month. We're going to start with Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. We're calling it an apostle's anguish. Next is Romans 10, 5 through 15, confession. Then Romans 11, 1 through 2a and 29 through 32, his mercy is more. And finally, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8, you belong. I'll be reading our first passage of the month. It's Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. It is the Revised Common Lectionary Passage for Proper 13 in Ordinary Time, which falls on August the 6th. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. As my conscience assures me with the Holy Spirit, I have great sadness and constant pain in my heart. I wish I could be cursed, cut off from Christ, if it helped my brothers and sisters who are my flesh and blood relatives. They are Israelites. The adoption is God's children. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises belong to them. The Jewish ancestors are theirs, and the Christ descended from their ancestors. He is the one who rules over all things, who is God, and who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Jeremy, why is Paul so anguished about Israel's condition? And as an add-on, what what ultimately becomes of Israel? <laughs> right. Well, <first> <laughs> Let's all, start I, off with a bang. I don't know whether you've really got it in for me, I mean, but there's Romans 9 to 11, it's one of the, the trickiest passages in the New Testament. It's a wonderful, they're wonderful three chapters, but they are they are highly contested. I mean, I think some things are crystal clear, but there's some things um, that, that, that are not 100% clear. And I, so I kind of preface it by saying these are tough, and I'm not primarily a New Testament scholar. So there's there's some things that uh, you, others will listen to and say, don't quite, don't quite you know, go with you all in, with that detail particularly. But anyhow, to answer your question, why so anguished? Because the Jews have rejected the Messiah. Because Christ came to his own and his own rejected him. 
And this absolutely stabs him because he wants to believe that Christ stands in the line of Israel, that Jesus is a Jew, and Paul himself is a Jew, and he was coming to his own people, so surely they would have welcomed him. And that that just gets to him at the deepest possible level. So the whole of Romans 9, 10, 11, which can be seen as a, as a kind of minefield of doctrinal controversy, in fact comes out of a heartfelt a heartfelt anxiety. Um, now, as far as what will ultimately become of Israel, we might come on to that later, he doesn't answer, in, in my own view, I don't think he's, he's primarily interested in what, what will happen to each and every single Jew. I uh, don't think that's his major concern, and I think, it, I hope it'd be fair to say, he lives in hope. He wants to hold out hope to to the Jews, um, as well as, of course, to the Gentiles. And he believes God has made possible a salvation for them both, for Jew and Gentile. So just kind of backing off a bit here, uh, it depends how you see uh, Romans as a whole. We've tended sometimes in the Protestant world to see it as about how does an individual get right with God, when it's not that Paul wouldn't care about that. But I think the main the main concern here is how can Jews and Gentiles live together, and how do the Gen how do the Jews carry on believing they really are the Jews, Jewish Christians? That is, how can they really still be think of themselves as Jews, and how, of course, can the Gentiles uh, get engrafted into the people of God? So, as for the future of Israel, he's, he lives in hope. He lives in hope. I think of that. I think you're right on. Romans 9 is so hotly contested in theological circles, and maybe one of those contests is about what I'm going to ask you. This particular translation states that he, Christ, is the one who rules over all things. He's sovereign, verse 5. But in some theological schema programs, that would be interpreted that God is in control of all things, every jot and tittle. Can Jesus Christ, theologically, be the ruler of all, but not in control of everything, and if so, how so? Help us understand. <laughs> you really must have an input. <laughs> You'll never come back to this podcast, <laughs> will you? <laughs> first of all, it's extra. First of all, let's say it's extraordinary. He's calling Jesus Christ the ruler. That that is basic to Paul's theology, but it is an extraordinary thing for a Jew to be saying that uh, a monotheistic Jew that Jesus is sharing in the full rule of God. Um, in, in my colleague and friends, Richard uh, Vulcan's words, Jesus belongs to the identity of God. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the New Testament is saying, which means he shares in the full rule of God. And that, that's an absolutely extraordinary thing. I was, actually, I was with Richard last night. We're in the same Bible study group. Um, and he reminds me of this regularly. What, what an extraordinary kind of claim is being made here. But then I think we need to say, well, what does rule mean? And you're dead right. There's a, there's a certain view, of course. A rule of God as a kind of puppeteer or what would be called a highly deterministic view of God's relation to the world where God is we're manipulating the movement of every atom at every point um, and therefore denying let's call it human integrity uh, the world becomes a kind of machine uh, that, uh, that that's built by and utterly controlled by God and that kind of control language can of course be devastating uh, pastorally. After all, 
Um, I remember sitting through a sermon once with someone who, whose child they, they, they'd lost, and I think it was not quite a cult death, but it was a three months after birth or something. They'd lost their child, and we, and we sat through this sermon about God being in control. And it was about 25 minutes, very fierce sermon about God being Lord and God being in control. And we were talking to the preacher afterwards, and my friend just went for him, basically, and said, do you realize what you're saying then? So was God in full control when, uh, when our daughter died? So you, you have to be careful. Of course, there's truth here. But you have to be careful how you express it. Um, one way through here is to speak, of course, about rule. Who defines what rule looks like? And the answer is Jesus. There is no rule that is not a loving rule that does not care passionately for the beloved. So this is not a rule that's a kind of rule that's dominated by what we would understand as kind of militaristic control. It's a kind of rule that is dominated by love, the kind of, um, yeah, loving rule. And of course, it's there in the Old Testament, right? I think from the start, I think that's what part of being in the image of God means that we're to, to have, as they say, dominion over the earth, but that doesn't mean domination. It means a, a wise, loving rule. And so that God, therefore, in ruling the world, will do nothing that compromises his love, nothing that um, overrides the good God that he is. So that's how I would understand rule. And what's happening in, 19, in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that Paul is saying not, as some interpretations of Romans 9 have, that God is uh, directly manipulating every last event, but that God is nonetheless working his purpose out in the world, very often against human resistance and against evil forces and all the rest of it, but he is working his purposes out, and those purposes are purposes of love and grace. And that's how God rules or exercises his rule. Um, Jesus, in other words, keep coming back to Jesus. Jesus is the model of what rule is actually about. Think of Jesus driving out the um, healing people, driving out the evil um, in its healing miracles and teaching the rest of it. That's, I think, the best model of rule that we have. Yeah, I think the uh, Torrances and Bart as well have done such a, uh, a service to the church in helping us understand that God can only act out of his being. Yeah. He cannot contradict himself. So as you said, Jesus, who is the center of all things, he defines what rulership looks like, what reign looks like, and it looks like love because that's who he is. And so it is such good news, but sometimes we come to scriptures like this and with our fallen imaginations, imagine something fearful, that God is in control. And so he did this to my child, you know, referencing the example you gave, to teach me something. Well, what kind of God is that? And uh, so we keep looking to Jesus, don't we? Absolutely. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there won't be great mysteries. I mean, it's not, that doesn't instantly answer every question. What it gives us is a perspective from which to look at the world. Mm. Um, you're right, of course, this was Bart's great insight. You see you see everything through Christ. And Bart didn't think that he was doing anything terribly revolutionary or different there. He was just trying to unfold the logic of the New Testament, of what, of what the Gospels and Paul and the rest were actually saying. Um, yeah. And on that, I think he's, he's dead right. That was the great breakthrough for me theologically as well. Actually. Yeah, it, it, for me, it's, it's realizing um, 
that really all theology is Christology. We, we look to Christ, <laughs> and then we we go from there. So, well, let's transition to our next pericope. It is Romans chapter ten, five through fifteen. It is a revised common lectionary passage for proper fourteen and ordinary time, August the thirteenth. Jeremy, would you read it for us, please? Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith talks like this. Don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will go down to the region below, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message of faith that we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness, and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. The scripture says all who have faith in him won't be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they don't have faith in? And how can they have faith in someone who haven't, they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news. Hmm. Thank you. To me, Romans 10, 9, we often have a reductionist view as just a simple linear step for salvation. Just say the words and salvation is yours. Uh, and certainly on some level that's true, but I, I think confession is, uh, it has its place, it's of great importance. But what I'm, I'm gonna ask you is give us a more robust way of thinking about how there is a relationship with confession and salvation. Well, we look at that verse. Yes, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord, and trust, and sorry, and in your heart you have faith that God, that could easily suggest, or, sorry, a faith that God raised him from the dead. Uh, that could easily suggest, say the right words and assent to the right truths, that is, sign up to the right truths, and you'll be saved. Uh, clearly, there's more to it than that. Now, the danger is and we overreact against that. We say words don't matter, and believing certain things to be true uh, doesn't matter. No, they both matter. But there's a more fundamental level, I think, that Paul is getting at here, or at least assuming, he's assuming, that is. And that is that faith is whatever else it is, it's a profound trust. The beginning of verse 10 uses that word. Uh, trust, that is, and trust is a commitment of the whole person, body, soul, mind, emotion, the whole lot, um, an utter giving oneself totally uh, to God, the God who raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. So it's much more than about believing that certain things are true, and it's certainly much more than saying the right things. Now, therefore, those, those things don't matter? No, of course they do. Uh, the right words and ascending to the right things are part of what it means. They're the kind of outward expression of this deep, deep trust. The trust is, of course, yet again, Christ-centered. And that's what's crucial and going on 
right through. It's not just finally believing again the right things, it's believing in Jesus Christ. Calvin had this brilliant thing about, you understand, faith as uh, through the Spirit, through the Spirit you are united, that is bound to Jesus Christ. So everything is Christ-centered here. So with this profound trust in Christ, yes, we will say certain things, and yes, we will believe that certain things are true. Uh, but those that were the outward sign or the, the fruit of this deep, deep trust, I think that's what's going on. He doesn't actually mention the Spirit right here, but he's certainly presupposing that. For Paul, it's the Spirit who makes this faith possible, who, who makes it possible for us to trust in Christ. You know, I, I just a, a little aside there, often I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I'm often um, intrigued when when people make make the Christian faith, how can I put it, sound a little easy, too easy to believe. Uh, you know, what we're asked to believe is that this Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter, an obscure part of the Roman Empire, is the secret to the entirety of the universe, the cosmos in all its billions of light years, and all, you know, the vastness of the cosmos. That's what we're being asked to believe, which is not immediately obvious. And we're also asked to believe it of a Messiah that was crucified. It was a kind of ultimate oxymoron for a Messiah, the warrior king, to be crucified. How is that possible? 1 Corinthians 1, of course, deals with that, and chapter 2 makes very clear that is a miracle of the Spirit. How it, why on earth would you put your trust, your total trust, in, in this man, if it weren't for a miracle that happens in you uh, by the Spirit? Now, Paul goes on there. I'm sorry, I'm jumping slightly here, but he goes on here. Um, say, well, how does this happen? Well, of course, when Jesus this happens through a preacher, through declaration. And what happens when someone declares uh, Jesus Christ? The Spirit operates. And the Spirit takes my feeble words as a preacher and makes them live inside you and inside your heart such that you trust Christ. I think it's in that kind of, um, that's kind of crudely summarized, but I think that's what's going on here. Mm, I appreciate what you said about verse 10, trusting. And I, I've long thought of salvation as just trusting our belonging to God. Yeah, and if we saw it as a trust relationship, how that would change American Christianity, Wouldn't which often is easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity, as I've heard it called. It's three inches deep and three miles wide. Well, it, um, might, change, it might change British Christianity as well, but that's, that's, <laughs> that might be a bridge too far. I don't know. Um, no, you're, you're dead right. Actually, I have a colleague, New Testament colleague here at Cambridge, who has uh, been wanting to write a book for many years, simply called Belonging to God. So the whole of the gospel around the category of belonging. But, uh, Christ belongs to the Father, and then through the Spirit we belong to him, and thus belong to his Father. Very, very powerful concept, and it pulls so many of these strands together. Hmm. You've already touched on this, but uh, many people in our listening audience, Jeremy, are gospel preachers and teachers, mm. and uh, Paul seems convicted that heralding the gospel is a glorious thing, but sometimes it can feel underappreciated. Could you just take a moment to encourage those who labor to herald good news? Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> James Torrance, I mentioned earlier on, my mentor for many years, he, he taught me about a very early sermon he preached, which was, uh, uh, he said it was a disaster because he messed up and it was 
badly organized and I think he dropped his notes and it all went wrong. And it was about 10 to 15 years later, I think someone came up to him at a service and said, do you know, when you were about 23 or whatever it was, you preached a sermon on such and such. I went home and I suddenly realized Jesus was real. Hmm. The beginning of my Christian life. So what I'd say to preachers is work at it like mad. Uh, never be ashamed of it. And we have to believe that the Spirit is going to honor that and the Spirit is going to work through you and for many uh, bring Christ alive. I am, um, you know, I'm a musician and sometimes when I visit church, they say, oh, well, you won't want to be preaching. You'll just be wanting to play the piano. Or do we need a piano or a choir? I said, no, no, I'll be preaching. You're going to get a 20-minute sermon. Uh, because words are incredibly important. And whatever else the Christian message is, it is something to be declared. Something has to be spoken at some stage. That's the way that God has set things up. So we should never be ashamed of it. And think of the millions of lives that have been changed through good preaching. When I said work at it, I, I do mean that. Work joyfully at it, of course. Um, but it doesn't just happen. It's uh, It's something you have to work at and craft. Uh, don't be ashamed of the time that you spend on a sermon. It's very easy to say, isn't it? When someone comes to the door, if your pastor comes, someone comes to the door and they say, uh, well, uh, could you come see me? I've got a, there's a thing I just had to talk through. Uh, it, it's, it's, yes, of course, I, I'll do that. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, well, actually, I'm in the middle of preparing the sermon, so you're going to have to wait a day. Uh, it's, the, it's that priority we give to preaching. I think we should never be ashamed of. So preachers out there, go for it. Go for it. And um, I just love, love hearing a good sermon. Hmm. That's an encouraging word. And right on about uh, the story you shared with J.B. Torrance, because in my own experience, preaching the gospel, <laughs> proclaiming good news, it's those sermons that I think are stinkers and bombs yeah. that people will say, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear by the Spirit. And it's such a powerful reminder. Yes, I am a participant in what God's doing, but it's God. <laughs> it's yeah, His yeah. Word, and it won't come back empty. Hallelujah. Yeah. Precisely. One has to believe that. So, um, yeah. no, you, you, never, you never know. You never know. Um, I used to get very discouraged when people didn't say anything after sermons. And um, the very first, uh, the, one of the very first sermons I preached, I, I really worked incredibly hard at it. It's on justification by faith of all things. When I stood at the back of the church uh, after the service, you know, waiting for the waves of adulation, the sweat was pouring off me. And I thought, my goodness, this was a good sermon. That, you know, they're going to be very moved and someone's going to say they were converted. And the first man came up to me and said, yeah, Jeremy, thanks for your sermon. You know, your predecessor, he, was, he really knew how to preach. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> well, well, Truth the, bomb. The gift of discouragement is not one of those gifts that died out at the end of the apostolic year. You know, it's still very much around. There we go. <laughs> well, let's transition to our next pericope of the month. It's Romans chapter 11, 1 through 2a and 29 through 32. It is the revised common lectionary passage for proper 15 in ordinary time, August the 20th. So I ask you. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected his people, whom he knew in advance. 
Or don't you know what the scripture says in the case of Elijah when he pleads with God against Israel? God's gifts and calling can't be taken back. Once you were disobedient to God, but now you have mercy because they were disobedient. In the same way, they have also been disobedient because of the mercy they, that you received, so now they can receive mercy too. God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. I've heard it said, Jeremy, it's uh, people don't abandon people they love, they abandon people they use. Mm. God doesn't use us in the ways we often think about using in our fallen human condition. He loves us, and his love doesn't recoil even in our rejection of him. So how should this inform our understanding of God, our understanding of the human family, and I know this is, again, another big one, (laughs) and, and how we bear witness to the kingdom of God? And you've got five minutes. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to ask for extra money for this. I think. Um, yes. Right. I don't have the answers to all these things. That's the first thing to say. There is a, I think this is a, re- there is a real mystery going here. Just to back off a bit uh, or back away uh, from the argument, uh, from Paul's argument at this point, and look at the bigger picture. I think what, what Paul's argument in nineteen eleven very crudely and broadly is that um, – Yes, the Jews have have rejected the Messiah. But because of that rejection, or through that rejection, as a result of that rejection, the gospel has, so to speak, bounced to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have received it, or many have, gladly. And then his hope is that the uh, Jews will re-receive it, or or re-hear it and receive it, rather I should say, re-hear it and receive it. Uh, through the ministry of the Gentiles. So there's a wonderful pattern there, as it were, from one to the other. One rejects, so it goes to the other, in order that it can come back to those who reject. And uh, that's what Leslie Newbigin, the great um, uh, Presbyterian minister and missionary, I recommend anything he writes, but he he talks about the logic of election. Uh, it's not a case of choosing one and rejecting the rest. It's choosing one for the sake of the rest. <laughs> and then the rest, uh, if it will, uh, they'll chosen for the sake of yet others, and they're chosen for the sake of yet others, and so on. I think that's what's going on here in 9, 10, 11. So, uh, what you've been saying earlier in 9, in particular in chapter 9, is that the, the gospel, this is how God has always worked, it seems that some have their hearts hardened and then the gospel or good news goes elsewhere, but then it can come back to those whose hearts were hardened. Now, the trouble with this, and I'll be honest, I don't have any easy answers to this, that language of hardening of hearts, that's hard language or locked up in disobedience. I do believe that that when, when we reject God, God, so to speak, confirms our choice in some way, in some mysterious way. Um, and I can't, I can't work out all the ins and outs of that, but there's a kind of confirmation of the, of the decision we've taken. Um, but Paul's great hope for someone in that position, when we see someone doing that is, well, maybe 
This will enable someone else to come to faith who can then share their faith with the person who has rejected God initially. That's Paul's hope. So I, I see the whole thing basically as about about hope. Um, just a, a little story that might relate a bit to this. Um, my brother is, is um, uh, for all his life, has been a chronic, all his adult life, a chronic schizophrenic, very ill, and very unlikely to recover or be cured from this, of course. And I've often, and, and he may or may not be a believer, I don't know precisely, but I often ask myself, why have I had such a wonderful life in comparison to him? Or to put it in the language of election, why have I been chosen and not him? And that great why, that things have turned out this way, I have no answer to particularly. That is, of course, a mystery. But the question, of course, what I ought to be asking is, what can I do or say uh, for the sake of my brother in order, that, in order that love of God might work through me to him? That's the question. The metaphysics of choice, I can't work out. But that God is at work in love for the salvation of the world in this strange and interesting way where the, where one thing where the gospel bounces from one to the other. That and I can believe in that. I can believe in that because because of Jesus. Mm. So that's a, a roundabout way going. But it's a hard it's a hard problem because it seems to make God slightly manipulative on this. Yeah, this is weird. Yeah, this is where Tom Torrance has really helped me to think through Jesus as the elect one of the Father yeah, on behalf of all humanity. And that allows us to have hope, does it not? Absolutely. Even when we don't understand. So we forget that in the of Ephesians, uh, Christ is called the beloved. <laughs> mm. we, can just run out, we can just skip over that very easily. But hang on a minute. That's election language. That's the language yes. God uses of Israel. So Christ now comes into into Israel's place and becomes the elect one. And yes, indeed, the rejected one as well. So election and rejection, they've all been taken care of in Christ. So I can trust his, his mercy, his way. And I think that's what Paul's relying on here. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great message of hope, 9, 10, and 11. Well, let's bring mercy and Israel together since you just mentioned them. Verse 32 states that God has mercy on all. So what does all mean? This yeah. is another one of those contested areas. Does all mean Israel? Does all mean Israel and those who confess Christ? Or does all mean the totality of humanity? What say you? Well, well uh, indeed, there are about five or six different views on this. Um, some want to say this means every Jew then, and every Jew then and now, some would say, and every Jew of the future, um, without Christ. Uh, no, I can't believe that's what Paul is saying. That salvation through Christ is so critically important um, for Christ. Um, my own line on that, uh, I change my mind on this a number of times, but I think it would be something that all believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. All the true heirs of Abraham might be another way of putting it, but it's contested. But one thing I don't think it means, no, I can't believe it means, it doesn't mean the totality of humanity. It couldn't mean that. Sometimes this has been used to justify universalism. No, Paul lives in hope. He doesn't ever, in my own view, ever get to the position where he's saying every single person will be saved. Um, I don't 
that would be what you might call dogmatic universalism. I think Tom Torrance actually uses that kind of language. That seems to me to go well beyond what Paul is actually saying. I think Paul lives in hope, um, as we should. And it's not for us to judge mercifully and not in God's position. Being God is a very exhausting business, by the way. And in a lot of us try to be God, forgetting it's a very tiresome <laughs> It's a heavy responsibility trying to be God and make and make divine judgments about everything. Um, it's not for me to judge the eternal destiny of this or that person. It is my my job to hold out hope, uh, the hope as it is in Christ. So, am I dodging that? Probably. I don't know exactly what it means. That that would be my line. I didn't know we were going to play dodgeball, Jeremy. That wasn't on the. <laughs> the assignment for today. No, I, I, uh, I hear you, and you know this again is why we look to Jesus Christ, don't we? Because we see who He had mercy on in His, uh, in His physicality, in the historical Jesus, and He had mercy on people I wouldn't have mercy on. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and in that mercy. That's great. He was wooing them to himself. Absolutely. And, he, you know, it's so interesting to me that people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. They were drawn to him. They wanted to be with him. That's lovely. And uh, that is good that news. That is great. That yeah. is great. Our final passage of the month is Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. It is the Revised Common Lectionary Passage for Proper 16 in Ordinary Time on August the 27th. Jeremy, read it for us, please. So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Because of the grace that God gave me, I can say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable, since God has measured out a portion of faith to each one of you. We have many parts in one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. In the same way, though there are many of us, we are one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift is encouragement, devote yourself to encouraging. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be cheerful. Hmm. We're in the season of ordinary time on the Christian calendar, and I see it as a season of response, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's in relationship to the new creation. We are inaugurated by Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And if we take new creation seriously, what does it mean and what does it look like to respond mm. as a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy? Huge, huge, cosmic, indeed, cosmic question. New creation is what God is bringing about, and what and this is the crucial thing that he has already brought about in Jesus Christ, and supremely in the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Uh, a phrase I use more and more now is the alreadiness of the Christian faith, and mm. the alreadiness of the new creation. 
when we think new creation, it may be, apart from that verse in 2 Corinthians, that we jump to Revelation 21, we think of you know, new heaven and new earth, uh, the world being, re-rade, uh, being uh, yeah, recreated, remade, redone. Um, but we need to, as far as the New Testament is concerned, it's already happened in Christ. This is the already-ness of the new creation that's been sealed, forged in the raising of Jesus from the dead. So, and, and it was Tom Torrance that helped me see this, actually. The, one of the very first Christian books I read was Tom Torrance's Space, Time, and Resurrection. I recommend it to you. Um, I didn't, there was so much I didn't understand in terms of the detail. But the vast cosmic sweep of that book just took my breath away. I remember Tom Wright telling me, N.T. Wright telling me, that he was in tears by the time he got to the end of that book. He was so like this. Because it's this extraordinary vision that Christ has already defeated the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, which ruin our lives and which ruin the created world as a whole. Uh, The end is assured. It's happened in him. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he took, so to speak, a bit of creation and he remade it as a promise of the great remaking to come. So the already-ness, it's already happened in Christ is, is crucial. And I think, it, although he's not quite spelling that out, not, not at this point, we get plenty of hints of it in Romans 8 and elsewhere in Paul and 2 Corinthians. Um, but it's there nonetheless, it's all assumed. Then, of course, it's not just already in, in the past in Christ, it's, uh, it's there in the future, the recreation, the great cosmic makeover, um, as in Revelation 21 and in Romans 8 and elsewhere. Uh, God bringing all things together and God's people in the center of the new world with uh, honoring the, the lamb on the throne. But then this might uh, address the, the last part of your question. What does that mean? Well, of course, new creation is accessible now through the Holy Spirit. In, in Paul's worldview, it's the spirit who comes from the future and the spirit of Jesus Christ who comes to turn our lives inside out so that if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, new creation. Um, it's the spirit who, who makes all this possible. What does it mean? Fundamentally, it means we can, of course, say Abba Father. We can call God Father. It means that we now belong to a new community called the church. We have brothers and sisters for eternity. Um, we we are loved to the very depths of our being. And therefore, it means that everything in our lives, everything in our lives will be magnetized by the love of God. Everything will point to God ultimately. So in my own case, when I was talking about music, music, after I came to faith, became so much more interesting because now I could think about ways in which it could magnify God and stop being an idol stop being something I worship. Related to that, a very interesting thing about Romans 12, and it was my colleague here in Cambridge, Michael Thompson, who pointed this out to me. Indeed, he wrote a whole dissertation on it called Clothed in Christ. What he noticed was, is if you go back to Romans 1, uh, where Paul, among other things, is is, um, outlining outlining, painting in very lurid terms the effects of idolatry. That is, we worship the creation rather than the creature. And he spells out this awful downward spiraling of idolatry. 
Um, what's really interesting is by the time we get to Romans 12, and this is after Paul has spelled out the whole kind of logic of salvation, election, or whatever, now he's saying to the community, not just to individuals, he's saying, how are you going to live? And my colleague Mike has, has shown in this book that, that point by point in this section of Romans, Paul is answering Romans 1. That now you don't have uh, a worship of the, cre the, um, the, the creation rather than the creature. You have the worship of God. Uh, present your bodies as living sacrifices, is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly, it can be translated there, worship. Now, uh, everything you do can glorify God. So you don't have to be trapped by this awful running down that idolatry brings. When you, you just you worship creation, then you worship yourself, and you just sort of I don't know, disappear down an idolatrous plug hole. So it's a fascinating thing. What you have now, because of Christ and the Spirit, you can have the reversal of idolatry. Now, God can be honored above all, and not the human self not the human sinful self. So, just a bit of background there. Reread that and you'll see he's he's talking about the mirror opposite of what he talked about in Romans 1. You mentioned N.T. Wright, and my wife and I have been journeying through his devotional, a daily devotional called uh, On Earth As It Is In Heaven. A and you can see hints of torrents in his thought process, but one of the things that comes emerging so beautifully out of that book is um, we, we too often think of what is to come and we think of it in terms of escapism. We just can't wait to get away from this place, but God has remade it in himself and it is, it is unfolding before our very eyes. And what I hear you saying is how can we get in on that? How can we actively participate in that reality that is already true in Jesus Christ? And I think yeah. that the, the arts are one very powerful way in which that can happen. That yeah. the arts, I think, at their greatest are not just creative, but recreative. That is, the artist, musician, whoever, can take the very worst and, and, rem and remake it. There's a wonderful sculpture, it used to be in the British Museum, no longer there now, but um, it was called The Tree of Life, which of course comes from Revelation 22, 21. Um, and it's it's uh, from Mozambique, and it's it's a sculpture. It's a large sculpture of a tree, but the whole thing has been made out of decommissioned weapons from the Civil War in Mozambique. So that the you know you've got AK-47s and pistols and every conceivable kind of armament, and out of those dreadful things comes the tree of life. Um, I think every church ought to have something like that in it. Mm something where the very worst has been taken in to the very best, because that's what God is about. Ultimately. It's what he's already done with Jesus, raising him from the dead. And now it can begin to happen in and through us. And the artist, at their best, I think, can witness to that, can be making things in a way that shows, well, that things can be remade. Yes. That, that nothing need be discarded. Nothing, you know, the ordinary, the banal, or not just... Uh, evil people, but awkward people, and the people we'd rather not have around. God's in the business of remaking them. I think that's a wonderful. That's what it means to participate in the new creation. Yes, yes. We look to the artists, the poets, the, 
the singers, yeah. the musicians, and it, it gets to something that I think C.S. Lewis and Tolkien understood that you can get at a truth, a theological truth in a way through fiction or storytelling or artistry that you can't with just logic all the time. It just, it, yeah, it so, gets to your soul without you knowing it happened, which absolutely. is a beautiful thing. Which is why, of course, so much of the Bible is in, is in metaphor and parable and mm -hmm. similes. We need the direct statements, of course we do. But we also need this, the imaginative flourishes that you'll find in Paul. I mean, 2 Corinthians is full of it, wonderful parallelism and rhetoric, and, um, so that you're capturing the imagination with the possibility of new creation. My personal opinion, Jeremy, is that we often have an anemic understanding of what it means to belong to each other, as Paul proclaims in verse 5. I'm just curious, do you think the same way, and if so, how so? And how does our belonging to Christ inform our belonging to each other? Well, here I get a bit uncomfortable because I think my, my love for others in the church is very weak a lot of the time. And I do what I th think many of us do. That is, we tend to like and love the people that we like. <laughs> mm. And we then have a church where people choose each other. Um, I think the great thing about the Christian church is that we don't choose each other. And God puts, puts us, or ought to, put, or we ought to let him, rather, put people next to us who we would never choose in a million years. And they come with a gift tag uh, on which God writes the message, this person is for you and your sanctification. So it's the idea that, that, that election means that God will choose the most unlikely people and he will bring you together in a way that only he can and that only the cross could achieve. I often, often say to myself and to others too, either the cross is, the, is God's answer to the sin that divides us, or it isn't. And we've got better ways of holding ourselves together, you know, through common interest groups or common likes or class or dress or locality or whatever it is. Uh, now, a church witnesses to a kind of togetherness that isn't, if we really believe it, in the, in the crucifixion and the giving of the Spirit, uh, a kind of togetherness that isn't actually possible anywhere else. And if there's nothing in our churches which shows that, well, we have to ask, well, maybe there's a kind of sickness here. And the consumerist culture just pushes against that at every stage, unfortunately. Um, you know, you go to the church, it's going to cause you, <laughs> cause you the least pain, <laughs> going to the dentist or something. Um, you know, it's just that you, no, I just go to somewhere that, that will get me through the week and with people that I like. Um, that That is just a very, as you say, anemic, it's a very good word for it, anemic understanding of belonging. God makes possible a kind of belonging that cannot be created anywhere else. Now, as I say that, it stings, it stings at me because I go to a very sort of associational, pretty monochrome kind of like church. Um, and, and they're wonderful people and I've learned a great deal, a great deal. But I, sometimes I wonder, my goodness, if someone walked in here, would they say, how on earth is this lot together? Mm. Would anyone say that? Um, and I think that's the challenge of the, the cross and the resurrection. It was Leslie Ubrigan who helped me see that more than anybody else, more than anybody else. 
I think he he saw that and and was appalled by the the consumerism that had taken over, particularly the British church. It's like you said, the local church is made up of people that would probably not be friends otherwise, but as Ephesians 4 tells us, that's a work of the Spirit who has provided the unity, and Paul asks us to work at it, to maintain it, uh, to live into that reality that we do belong to each other, we're unified to each other through Christ, even if you wouldn't have naturally chosen them to be your friends, right? I know, it's uh, Philippians, verse, work out your salvation with fear and trouble. That's not addressed to the individual to to pursue that salvation. He's writing to the community there. He's saying, you've got to work at being together, folks, because mm. you've lost what it means to be servants to each other. That's the great servant term of Philippians too. So, he, you know, that's that's tough stuff, he's saying. Um, it, it's not going to be easy, but as long as you keep your eyes on Jesus and the cross, it's the only way you can really go. Yeah, it reminds me of what Karl Barth wrote, and i paraphrase, but Jesus is the Lord of all, and he's the servant of all. And in him, we do likewise, don't we? Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I I thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. It was rich, and it's beautiful, and I know the listening audience will will benefit greatly from it. I want to take a moment to thank our uh, podcast producer, Ruel Inario, who's been crushing it, doing a great job, as well as our transcriber, Elizabeth Mullins, who is uh, just doing a smashing, smashing job. We couldn't have this podcast without them. Jeremy, it's our tradition here at Gospel Reverb to invite our guests to close in prayer. So would you please pray for us? I'd be delighted. Thank you very much. Heavenly Father, for this time together, we give you thanks for the extraordinary calling that you have given us, whoever we are, whatever we are, for the way in which you have adopted us unworthy, as we are, not because we are better than anybody else, but because by your Spirit you've opened your heart to us and opened our hearts to you. Thank you for that miracle, for the miracle of grace. Challenge us to see the cost of unity in the church and what you have made possible. We thank you for Paul's dogged determination with the Jews and the Gentiles in churches quarreling, full of pride, full of division, and yet he keeps returning to the cross, to the death, and to the resurrection of Jesus. We ask all these things in his glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being a guest of Gospel Reverb. If you like what you heard, give us a high rating and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Share this episode with a friend. It really does help us get the word out as we are just getting started. Join us next month for a new show and insights from the RCL. Until then, peace be with you.